This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week. Transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> now I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna, November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares? Get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two zero knots on the ground? And right after that, 
A Navy F-18 out of Lamar popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. <laughs> Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? <laughs> I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die and it must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment... I heard a click with the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. <laughs> His best innocent voice, LA Center, Aspen 3-0. Have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 30, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice. And that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Schul telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And that's from sports to the arts, from business to history, and your stories too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll produce them up and play them right back at you. They're some of our very best. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them and put them up on the air. And now it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from some of the best leaders in America, from military leaders to business leaders, coaches, and community and faith leaders in town across this country. And today we hear from Briggs Sorber, one of the original two men from Two Men in a Truck, and his family's business has grown to 7,600 employees and 3,000 trucks and 346 franchises. And Briggs travels around the country speaking to the employees of their franchisees to continually cultivate their culture and also to share with them his personal advice about life that he's often learned, well, the hard way. Here's Brig with what he tells them. I'm a geography major from Northern Michigan University. Uh, my goal was urban planning and land use regulation. And I'll talk with the movers because I love doing that. I'll travel around the different franchises and they shut the trucks down for a morning and I get to talk to them. And I tell them, you know, I never took a business class. I took urban planning and land use regulation. That was what my degree was in. And they're like, and I'll ask them, do you, any of you know what that is? And they're like, no, I, went, I don't either. But I got the degree and I never used it. But the point I tell them that is that I ask them, how many of you guys have gone to college or going to college? And it actually is surprising. Almost a third of them have gone or graduated. But I tell the rest of them, this is your college. You know, this is it. And I ask, why do you go to college? Why do you go to college? And they're like, to make more money. I went, how? How do you make more money by going to college? Well, you, you, know, you learn a trade, and then you go out there and make it happen. I went, all right. Well, this is your college. This is Stickman University, baby. This is it. And I said, so you're going to learn how to manage people, time, and money. And uh, you're going to move forward if you want to, because you have to make it happen. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you a damn thing. I tell them that. And I tell them I love them, but I'll tell you some things. I tell them that 68% of our managers in our system started out on the trucks or on the phones. 68%. 42% of our franchisees started out on the trucks or the phones. 42%. Several of them do not have college educations. And several of them are millionaires. Several of them have four-year degree graduates that work for them. You want to know why? Because they treated this like their college. They learned how to relate to customers, how to take care of customers. They learned how to take care and motivate movers and drivers like themselves. Everyone learned something here. I don't care if you have a four-year degree. You come in and you're a franchisee with a four-year degree, you're still going to get your teeth kicked in somewhere. So. I'm looking at you guys, and I'll ask them, you know, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if it was your goal in life to be a mover. It's like, nobody, nobody here wanted to be a mover, and you're all sitting here. I go, how sad, you know. How many of you, back when you were kids playing in the yard, you know, cowboys and Indians, cops, robbers, whatever, how many of you raised your hand and went, damn it, it's my turn to be the mover? Nobody. I said, but, you know, that's what careers start out. With car hearts and boots. I mean, this is, this is where they start. Where you go from here is totally up to you. 
I was talking with my president four or five years ago, and I said, I wonder what our movers and drivers that are doing that were with us 10, 15 years ago. I said, get a hold of the marketing department, have them get on social media and, and dig some of these people up. I want to know what they're doing. Tim Hudson, who was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, was a mover. We had a Harlem Globetrotter that was a mover. We had a rocket scientist from NASA that was a mover. And countless cops, doctors, teachers. And so we sent out a film crew to some of these. Can you just tell us, when you started out as a mover, how, did you gain anything from your career from just moving furniture? It's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and they would tell us what they learned about the you know, importance of showing up and being ready and being prepared. And Tim Hudson said, try throwing curveballs after you've been moving furniture all day long. It toughened me up, you know. And uh, so we tell these guys, what are you going to do with, with what you learn here? I hope you stay here. But if you don't, I mean, we have over 500 online classes for our frontline people to take and certifications they can take for free. Start building up those certifications. We have an online resume building kit to show you how to build a resume. If you don't stay here, I want you to be better because of us. But I hope you stay here. But it's up to you because nobody owes you a damn thing. And I tell them, I go, this is tough. I know some of us in this room have it really tough. But your parents don't owe you a damn thing. Your brother, sister, your grandma, your grandpa, nothing. Your teachers, your old coaches, they owe you nothing. State, federal, and local government don't owe you a damn thing. Two men in a truck doesn't owe you anything. God owes you nothing. If you feel that somebody owes you something and you didn't get it, what are you now? Oh, you're a victim. You know, you're a victim of what somebody else did to you, you know? And then you're just so angry and frustrated because that person screwed up your life. Get on with it. I mean, I hate to sound like this, but I don't care. I care about what happens to you now. I can't do anything about what happened to you in the past. But you have to take these things here. I said, if you compare to the rest of the world, if you woke up this morning with a roof over your head, and I'm staring at you guys right now, there's nobody starving to death here. As a matter of fact, there's some of you that are eating too much, all right? If you got a flush toilet and running water, if you have somebody that you love or somebody loves you, guess what? You got it better than 95% of the people in the world. You have it better than almost everybody in the world. There are people literally dying to get into this country just to grab your scraps. And I got some of you guys sitting here saying, woe is me. I said, you guys better get over it. I just want to wake them up. And um, I talked to man, a franchise in Philadelphia. And some of these movers, were they came up to me afterwards. And one of them said, I don't know how to speak to you. I said, well, I speak English, so what, what do you got? <laughs> he goes, oh, my God, I needed to hear that. And I go, you get it, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I just, he goes, it's freedom, isn't it? Nobody can hold you back. He goes, no. I said, isn't it funny how we can put ourselves, we feel like, in, like we're in prison, we're stuck in this job, we're stuck in this place, and we're, we're rattling the cage, and we're mad at everybody because we want out. Ever try just pushing on the bars and opening the door and walking out of it? Because you have that choice. You can do that. He goes, God, I love that. I went, yeah. And I'll tell the guys, I'll say, there's, I can put 
I don't know any of you guys, but you've landed three buckets I can put you in. I said, the first bucket, you're using this job. You're using it to pay for your education. Maybe you're using it to save money to move somewhere else. You're using it to make yourself better. I said, that's awesome, man. That's the bucket you want to be in. Let us know how you can use us. And I, I, we will show you. Then there's a second bucket. Most of you fall in this bucket. It's like, how the hell did I end up here? I mean, here I am, 28, 29 years old, and I'm a mover of furniture. This sucks. And I said, that's fine. I'll get to you later. I said, then there's the third bucket. And the third bucket is you don't give a shit. You don't care. You're not even listening to me now. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, every time I say that, somebody goes, <laughs> they'll look at me. But it's like, no, you're not even listening to me now. You're not hurting my feelings because I've been around you for my whole life. I've been around all of you my whole life. So I don't take this personally. But let me tell you what will happen to you. You will take one lateral move from job to job to job. This one is just one of the lateral moves that you've already had. And I've known this because I've been doing this job longer than most of you have been alive. Okay, so I know this. But it's sad to me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I said, you will move from this job to the next one, not to make you better, because it looks like it's easier money or you don't have to work as hard. You will, give me a few years before or after, but in your mid to upper 30s, you're going to wake up and you're going to find out that you don't have the same friends you used to have. Uh, You have family members that you don't even hang out with anymore. It's going to dawn on you that you are going to not have anything for the rest of your life. And that is the saddest part to me. And the only person that you can blame is yourself. Look in the mirror, not out the window at your excuses. And remember that. And only by the grace of God will you ever get an opportunity to pull yourselves out of that hellhole and make something of yourself. I said, that's what's going to happen. And the sad part is you've got more opportunity than I'd say 95% of the world to make something happen for yourself. And you know what? You don't need a college education for it. Work hard. Learn and humble yourself and find out what happens. And what a talk. And we'll continue our On Leadership segment with Brig Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. His story, his leadership talk here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue... Briggs Sorber's remarkable talk about, well, life, about work, about commitment, and in the end, about so much more. Let's continue with Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. They're hanging around the wrong people. Man, I rip on my movers for that. I said, our friends, or most of our friends, are only there for the season of our lives. And as we move and evolve, our friends change. And I've got a couple that I've had since I was younger, but those are relationships where my friends are moving in the same positive direction I am, and we're learning and we're giving to those relationships. But there's people that you know we shouldn't hang out with. You know, you're smiling. you got a couple of them right now, don't you? <laughs> so they're there for a season, but after a while, and I tell the movers the same thing, you're the average of your five closest friends that you hang out with. I stole that from somewhere, and I, I thought about it, and it's right. Every now and then, you've got to take a look at it. You've got some friends 
I'm not talking about a friend that's, a, that's down and you're helping them out. That's different. But you got one that's down all the time. They suck your will to live. You end up in places you shouldn't be or, or you're having conversations that aren't right. I tell these movers, told my kids the same thing. If I'm not hanging out with people that don't honor marriage, uh, they don't honor God, or they're pulling me from those things and making me better, they're gone. Uh, I, don't, I don't value that. I, I've got friends now that I didn't have three or four years ago. That's that evolution. You know, you're never quite there, right? You're always growing and changing. And I tell the movers, and I told my kids the same thing. You have to be the same way. You are built and made in God's image. You are a powerful being. Don't let anybody diminish you or your thoughts. Take a look at these friendships, and you want to feel empowering feeling is when you look at that one friend and go, you know what? I'm done. I'm choosing not to have you or your negative vibe around me anymore. So when you get these group of people, they start hanging with these people. They start looking at other people moving up. They look at people moving up and they, they don't like them. And if you talk with successful people, there's people that as you start getting places and doing things, it could be like building a strong marriage, you're doing, your kids are in a good place, uh, it could be a professional upgrade or whatever, and you've got friends that aren't happy about that, and they start talking bad about that, get rid of them. I mean, they, and that happens, it's sad. And so these people, are, these younger kids are not feeling well, they start looking at their friends, wow, they got that degree, they got that job. They just got a new car. I know, I was one of them. I was one of those people that would look at my successful friends and go, you'd look for some negative part in your life to, or some tragedy that happened to them. It's like, good, see what happens when, you, when that happens? When I flipped out of that and got away from that, it, it was empowering to me. And it, it was a, like a yoke, a heavy yoke off my shoulders. It was starting, you know what, I'm going to start celebrating the things in my friends' lives and know that, you know, I can get those things too. They might not be as big as that, but I don't want to do that anymore. And I think that was part of my faith walk too. And it's, that's kind of where I'm trying to get some of my movers and some of the people that will listen to me. Don't be that. Don't look at that. And you have a choice of how you're going to look at your life and look at the opportunities. And you start walking in line with godly principles and pretty soon your walk is lighter. When bad things happen to you, you start thinking, did I bring that on myself? Why is that in my life? And what is there to learn from that? And as you walk through your faith like that, you start looking at these things. And then pretty soon you start realizing, I want these people to feel this way. I'm loved by God. That feels weird when you feel like, I've been hiding from God, and, uh, and I'm, I've gotten screwed by God, and screwed by these people. All of a sudden, you're like, no, God likes a broken guy like me. He actually smiles at me. And I think he smiles more when I start doing other things that are all about myself. I think first we fix ourselves, and then as we get deeper into our faith, we're going like, oh, I can kind of pass that on. And then you get to a point where, I just got to this recently, it's like, God has shown me great favor. It doesn't mean my life is perfect. It doesn't mean I, I'm not making mistakes. He, he has never expected us to be perfect. If he did, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Or we would graduate to a point where we were a Pharisee that no longer needed Jesus. No, we're never there. But the fact that we are walking in stride, 
that we are listening to the words of God. We're helping out other people. I feel if we could see guardian angels, we'd see some beasts that surround us through our lives that keep us from being totally ripped apart. You know, I just want people to know that, that you have, God has given us free will. You're there in, your, in the place that you are. It could be because of somebody else. It could be because of your attitude. It could be the things in life. And I'm talking with some of the movers have had it really, really tough. But he also gave us free will to get out of these certain places too. I use this line, I liked it, in, in San Diego on Friday. I go, do you ever live your life like you feel like you're in like first gear and you're pedaling so hard? I go, when you start making the right decisions, it's like you shift a gear and you can breathe. It was wild. When you speak a lot, you can start seeing in people's eyes. They dilate and they have different body language when they get their arms wrapped around an idea. And that's one thing I'm really good at is really bad analogies on trying to get things across. I just, and my employees tell me that. But it was when I told that to these kids, young men, and there's a few young ladies there too, I said, know what it feels like to shift to that second gear when you can go, oh. I'm not talking about not pedaling. You're always pedaling. And they all went, yeah. Like, they wanted that too. Good. I said, well, it's here. But you have to decide to do that. To make the decisions to better yourself. That nobody else can control. And I go, your family's not mean. These people are not caring. They got their own issues in their lives. So they can't help you and spoon feed you all the way. You have to do these things on your own. And I think if we can get to a younger generation, I think all of us can hear that. I heard it later in life. I wish I would have heard it earlier. But it's enough to wrap their arms around that they can understand. And I told these kids, too, I go, don't listen to the media about what is successful. These clothes that you're supposed to wear and this car you're supposed to drive and this life that you're supposed to live, and these Michelob beer commercials where they're all, they're all skinny and they're all athletic and they're all sipping beers in their life. That's bullshit. I go, that doesn't exist. It's not true. That is a, it is a mirage that if you ever were able to get to that Michelob light commercial, you would get there and it would, there's no oasis there. You get there and it's empty. And then the next thing is out in front of you. Start winning where you are right now. Start living your life now and let it unfold and, and go where it's supposed to go. But don't take these mental images of what you're supposed to look like. And what a terrific talk by Briggs Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. And by the way, we also did a remarkable hour-long story about that company and the role he and his mom played, his mom, of all people, in building this remarkable company. And again, it's the largest moving franchise with 346 Franchises, 7,600 employees, and 3,000 trucks, and a nearly 96% referral rate, which is really remarkable. Briggs Sarber's talk with his movers, we bring it to you. And again, share your stories with us, leadership stories, any other stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
www.ourmericanlife.org. Again, we'll send you our best five stories each week. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But the most important stories we tell are our military stories. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam. We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children, so we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, May 19th, it was a beautiful day outside, Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school, couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. So I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, uh, came up and she says, you're going to come home with me for the weekend and spend the night and with Gary and Larry, they were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Oh, okay, so I didn't really have anything planned, but it sounded okay, so uh, we uh, got in her car, and on the way to her house, we stopped at a Hyde's ice cream store. Hyde's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors, and they had these candy racks, you can remember, they were like, you know, they were huge, as, as I remember them as a kid. And she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want, as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally, as much as I could carry, I took it to the counter. So whatever. So we went and we had the, spent the night and we, you know, did what ki- little kids do, you know, during a sleepover. And then the next morning she brought me back. And I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids. They were called Big Buddies. And there were these long things of bubblegum. And I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open. I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth. And... Uh, she got, let me out, say goodbye, so I walked in the house, and my mom met me at the door, and she said, let's go back to your room, I need to tell you something. So we walked back to my bedroom, and she said, let me hold your bubble gum 
because what I'm going to tell you is going to make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam and they were going to hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were, I was in the third grade, my brother was two years younger, and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a balance. Tough thing to, to, to think through as a young, young boy. The other day I can tell you everything that happened. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. The community was really playing it up. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game, and I was a pretty decent basketball player back then. And I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman, whose dad was our coach. We had the early game. It was like an 8.30 game, and it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman or one of them came in the room, and you know we were just waking up, and she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words, too. She said, Michael, I have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime she had said that, I thought, something about dad, something about dad. But it would be something like, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend, or we're going somewhere. It was like a letdown. And this time, I remember vividly thinking, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I may have scored two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in, okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. So I started watching the news, you know, constantly to try to find out what was happening. That was about the time where they were arguing about whether to sit around a round table or a square table to negotiate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. My dad's being held as a prisoner of war and they're arguing about what size the table's gonna be to talk about. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. And now I understand it better, you know, because of the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died. So a lot, of, a lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam, but the streets were wild with protesters and the, uh, the anti-war movement and it was just like everything was spinning out of control and here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay, then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris peace talks where they were, they were negotiating and then they announced they were gonna release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest. And my dad was gonna be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well, the first wave came home and that was such a joyous occasion I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God Bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the, the peace treaty broke down. And so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. 
it's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date. But something else had happened because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because I started that right away, they found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologists came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's gonna be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I, I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I remember being horrified by what, what, what now? What else is coming? So they take off from Hanoi, and we know he's on his way to the Philippines. And this is before internet, this is before cable television, just network television at the time. The plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, like at four in the morning, our time on the East Coast. So my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up as we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I think, you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing. And we're like, Mom, not now. Not now, you gotta watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life, your dad getting on free soil. You know, that was so cool. So then let me go back to the, the time when they're supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this, watch these men come home. They were going to fly to Travis Air Force Base, then to Naval Air Station Norfolk, but it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving from there to the hospital in Portsmouth where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that, but they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave of the hospital. And the door opens, and out pops this guy in this Navy khaki, full-dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years, because he was almost at, towards the end of a year-long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp, even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms, and they all kind of gather around and he says a few words and it it was like yes we're there yes and you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life almost breaking down and crying and again that was mike mcdaniel a retired u.s navy captain and his dad captain eugene red mcdaniel who flew a6s in vietnam shot down on his 81st combat mission 
The son gets the bad news. Three years, third grade, third grade to sixth grade. Is dad dead? Don't know. And then four more years, practically, will dad come home? Don't know. Dad does. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our next story is brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. And we're focusing here on healthy aging and something called Blue Zones which we'll get into a bit later. But let's get into the story first. Dean and Aisha Sherzai were both children of diplomats, and their careers in medicine landed them in Afghanistan, where they met. But what brought them together was their shared experience of having grandparents succumb to dementia. Here are Dean and Aisha to introduce themselves. I'm Dean Sherzai. I'm a neurologist, neuroscientist. My father was an ambassador. We moved around and ended up in Pittsburgh, not a place that people usually think of going, but it's, it was a wonderful place for us. And then for schooling, for college, I went to um, uh, Virginia, uh, specifically George Mason and then Georgetown, and then I did my fellowship at the National Institutes of Health. And then around 2002, I was asked by the, uh, Tommy Thompson and, uh, and the uh, World Bank to go to Afghanistan because my background, my grandparents were from Afghanistan and I uh, helped create the healthcare system there. And that's where I met this amazing, amazing human being. And that's the person next to me. My name is Aisha Sherzai. I'm a neurologist. I am the co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program here at Loma Linda University Health, along with my husband, Dean, my childhood. So my parents and my grandparents are from Afghanistan, and they, you know, they lived here in the United States. My grandfather was actually the prime minister of Afghanistan, and he was one of the people who uh, rewrote the constitution of the country. He was a surgeon trained at Columbia University and got his master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. So after the Civil War, everybody immigrated to the United States, and we traveled quite a bit because, like Dean's parents, my father was also a diplomat, and he was with Food and Agricultural Organization. So I lived in about nine countries before I was 18 years old. It was hard as a child, but I think it taught us a lot to adapt ourselves to any environment that we were thrown at. And uh, now I consider it a blessing because I met wonderful people and uh, we were exposed to all these cultures. And um, when you live outside of the United States, you truly appreciate all of the wonderful things that you have here in the United States. So as far as my education is concerned, you know, we went to different schools. Um, I'm a polyglot. I know, you know, multiple languages because of my exposure. Um, I always wanted to 
go into a field to be of service to people because that's what was you know, put in our minds by my grandfather and my father and my mother. And so I chose medicine because of my grandfather and um, I got trained at UCSD, UC San Diego, and most of my training, my neurology and preventive medicine training, I did a dual residency here at Loma Linda, so I'm a proud graduate. And then I went to Columbia University for two years to specialize in vascular neurology and epidemiology. And um, you know, throughout my education, along with Dean, um, our focus was to understand brain health better because my grandfather, as an amazing of a man, as an intelligent as he was, he suffered from dementia. And over, over my teenage years and over my childhood, I saw this amazing man who was a role model for all of us. He was um, basically our hero. We saw how he slowly and gradually lost his memory to the point where he wasn't able to recognize his children and his grandchildren. And we saw him slowly and gradually become like a child and we had to take care of him, my mom and dad had to take care of him. So that left a tremendous um, impact um, on me. And then we ha I had another grandparent who went through the same thing. So we went into this field, both of us, um, wanting to make a difference and understanding um, the diseases of the brain better, and um, here I am. Uh, we had the first conversation in Afghanistan in a party. It was about our grandparents, because my grandfather was an incredible human being, a secretary of education, brilliant man who again same thing suffered from Alzheimer's and uh, I remember that we were in Virginia uh, we had land for uh, for hunting um, back then and we gathered around him all his children and grandchildren this powerful of a man and one day while playing chess with him he forgot how to move the knight it's an unusual move it's like an L move he forgot how to move at night? Are you, are you kidding? This is super genius. And uh, that just put everybody into a shock. And from then on, we saw that this, this horrible decline, the loss of, of, in many ways, dignity. This person that, that was proud of nothing more than his cognition, his thinking, his brains, losing parts of that, not knowing how to you know, wear a shirt, not knowing how to uh, you know, recognizing people and, and simple things. There's nothing more painful than that. So we were sitting in the middle of a cold room with everybody else talking about politics and the two of us are talking about our grandparents and how they suffered. And that conversation was much more than that conversation. That actually formed our direction. We decided we're going to come back and restart the whole uh, you know, uh, process with a focus towards prevention. Not the typical one, not the same pharmaceutical one. I, I was at the experimental therapeutics branch at NIH, incredibly esoteric and you know molecular, and Aisha had done this uh, fMRI work at uh, UCSD, an incredible machine that can actually look at the function of the brain, but we were getting sick of this you know uh, weird science that wasn't getting anything. A hundred percent failure, zero drugs to slow down or stop the disease. So we took a risk. In fact, in our first conversation with the director of our program, Leon Thal, which is the number one dementia person in the country, we said we wanted to go to Loma Linda to study prevention, and he said, that's career suicide. And you've been listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, their love story, and then, well, as he just said, committing career suicide by wanting to work on prevention. And prevention of what? Well, dementia, Alzheimer's, 
that debilitating name that stripped so much dignity from their own brilliant grandfathers. When we come back, more of Dean Anaisha's story here on Our American Stories, brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. back with the story of Dean and Aisha Shirzai, brought to you by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. The Shirzais were interested in studying Alzheimer's prevention at Loma Linda University. Everyone thought it would be career suicide. This was their response. And uh, we decided that uh, that's a good way to die career-wise and we came here and uh, started the clinic and studied prevention and studied the disease and and 10 years ago before the concept was ever popular we said that Alzheimer's is preventable it was as if you spit in the face of scientists and everybody was uh, up in arms saying what are you saying this is crazy well this year at the Alzheimer's International Conference the plenary talk the big sign was prevention is the new cure that was amazing This amazing organ has the capacity to cure itself. This this three pound organ, three pounds, you hold it in your hand, it doesn't even weigh anything. And it's gelatinous, it's like a little jello, a little hard jello. But this three pound organ, 2% of your body's weight, consumes 25% of body's energy. Up to 40% of its oxygen at any one time. It's a hungry organ. It is the center, it wants to be the center. It wants you to know it's the center. And it's overwhelmed. You know, it was supposed to live to 40, at the most 50. You know, you're supposed to run away from a tiger, find a mate, produce a child and die. Nope, we don't want that, we want more, we want more. Travel, we want to do all kinds of things, uh, well into our 80s and 90s and beyond. But, but that is, is a great thing, but, but it puts a lot of strain on this amazing organ. So this brain gets overwhelmed and we have to address how to give it a chance. But there is, the answer is in the organ itself. It has 87 billion neurons. Each of those neurons can make as as many as 30,000 connections each. As much as one quadrillion connections altogether. It's a powerful organ that can protect itself if we give it a chance. No, you know, don't go to the next pill, the blue jellyfish thing, or some vitamin, this or that. It's more complex than that, but if we approach it more complexly, we can give this organ the capacity to continue to grow, not just diminish after the age of 20, 30, but continue to grow well into our 80s and 90s. So that's our passion. That's our goal. Everything we do, every breath we take, sounds like that song by, uh, you know, everything we do, is about getting the message that the answer to the health of the most important organ in your body is in your hands. Not only protect your brain brain against Alzheimer's, 
it can allow you to grow your brain capacity um, well into your later life. That's the beautiful message. I think we should start by saying, you know, a lot of people think of brain as, as an organ. But when you look at the function of the brain, it's us. It's our stories, it's our personality, it's the way we feel, it's the decisions we make, it's how we perceive the world, it's how, it's how we hope others perceive us. It's the kind of security that we want to bring in ourselves, in our minds, to connect with other individuals, to understand people better. All of that originates in the brain. So it really is the most important organ. How do you promote it, its health and protect it um, all depends on how we treat ourselves on a daily basis. Um, there was a time when the notion of disease was always separate from health, but we now know that it's a spectrum. The day we are born, the health of our brain is determined with what we're exposed to, whether it's food, whether it's you know stimulation with cognitive activity, things like sleep, a movement. As we grow older and older, it's more and more important to give our brain the chance to allow it to grow and thrive. Unfortunately, in the typical medical system, I'm saying typical because being a part of Loma Linda University Health, I'm proud to say that we look at the entire spectrum of health, a whole person care. You realize that the factors that result um, in brain disease later on in life um, can be modified, that it can be addressed during childhood, during adolescence, during midlife. And when you address those things, you tend to have a great brain. You live long and healthy and a cognitively vibrant life. So the kind of factors that we uh, focus on, obviously based on data, we take pride in being evidence-based and we are researchers, so we look into these factors, are things like, you know, we actually have created a, an acronym about it, NEURO, N-E-U-R-O. N is nutrition, E is exercise, U is unwind or stress management, R is restorative sleep, not just regular sleep, but deep sleep and O is optimizing cognitive and social activities. And so each one of them have their nuances and you know, a special place in, in people's lives. If we can flip this, the, the script that all of us are used to, which is the one vitamin, the one pill, or take away one thing, you know, take away fats, or take away carbs, or take away, it doesn't work like that. It's a more comprehensive approach. So when we talk about the neuro, the end part, there is no question. I know that there's a lot of controversy that's paleo, keto, this, that, that. No. We know that the profound data, the, 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 the bulk of data, thousands of you know, research articles, years and decades of work at population level shows that a plant predominant diet is by far the most effective diet for the brain. What does that mean? That means less meat, especially processed meats, less cheeses and, and less sugar. I mean, we're talking processed sugar. So if we can reduce those things, we, we really significantly protect our brain. Um, and it's not all or none. Reducing a little bit protects you a little bit, but reducing it a lot protects a lot. And then on the other side, increasing this beautiful cornucopia of vegetables of all colors and fruits and legumes, you know, um, nuts, all these things, especially in the whole form, that's it. That, that's not that complex. People always say nutrition is very complex, that it's, you know, it's very complicated and that you know, different types of nutrition pattern work for different people and that not a lot of people know about 
the idea of what a healthy nutrition entails. And that's not true. Um, and you know, it's quite sad to hear things like the ketogenic diet or you know, the diet that is restricted in an entire you know, food group come up and you know, take, take space and confuse people and just create a lot of noise. It's sad because you see the repercussions, you know, when people actually go on an extreme diet, like, or, or they completely cut out a food product, they actually suffer from it. They see, they see the negative impacts of it uh, as far as health is concerned. So uh, yeah, we've, we've known for a long time what a healthy diet is. And by making that switch slow, if it, that, that needs to be done slowly, that's fine. You'll see that you won't be feeling deprived. For example, one of the fears I had was salt. You know, if I give up salt, my gosh, my whole childhood was salt. You know, everything you ate had salt. I mean, the marketing, you know, gurus are brilliant. The, the, you know, the sugar, the salt, and the fat. There's a reason why we are addicted to those, because those are survival foods, meaning that they're not thriving foods, those are survival foods. So just because you're surviving doesn't mean you're thriving. Those are two different concepts, two different mechanisms. So it's a matter of taste, right? So I get introduced to all these herbs and spices, a world of herbs and spices. It's, it's, and you have incredible taste, but more importantly, pound for pound, herbs and spices have more anti-inflammatory, antioxidant characteristic than any other food. So here you take a food that's probably the most damaging food out there, salt, blood pressure, everything you can think of and you switch it with herbs and spices and you make it into medicine. Initially, you're gonna feel, uh, we forget this, I feel weak, I feel weird, something is wrong, I'm, I'm, I, this is not working. Well, why is that the case at the beginning? Because it's an addictive drug. So when you come off a drug, what happens? Withdrawal. But invariably, after a couple of months, every patient comes and says, oh my gosh, initially I had a hard time, but I am feeling so bright that I've never felt before like this. I feel like a fog has lifted. And it's simple, and it takes a little learning, but that's the food part. You've been listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, and my goodness, the experience of watching both of their grandfathers suffer at the hands of Alzheimer's. Well, it changed their life. And they went to this place called Loma Linda, California. By the way, at the time, the only certified blue zone in America. And Blue Zones, well, there are only a few of them around the world. Five there were. There's been some additional additions since the Blue Zone book came out, the best-selling book by Dan Butner. And we're going to get more into what Blue Zones are and how they work. But this couple, Dean and Aisha Shurzai, they had all the very best credentials. And they could have gone out into the world as specialists in health hospitals, private clinics, and instead, they went up to Loma Linda and committed career suicide, you would think, because they were working in the area of prevention rather than cures. And it ends up, as they said, well, the prevention is the cure. When we come back, more of this remarkable couple and these real innovators, Dean and Aisha Shurzai, here on Our American Story.
And we're back with the story of Dean and Aisha Shurzai, brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. And that, of course, is brought to us, as always, all things health, by the Stetson Family Office. The Shurzais told us about their acronym for better brain health, NEURO. We just heard about the N for nutrition, and here they are to explain the rest. The next part is exercise. I mean, have you noticed that there's no controversy about exercise? Yeah. Yeah, why is that the case? Well, we'll leave that. That's okay. (laughs) Because there's no money to be made on the other side. But nonetheless, exercise is critical for the brain, for for the entire body, but especially brain. We now know that there are three factors that are important. One is at least 150 minutes of strenuous exercise. Now, every time we we talk to our patients, they say, oh, I'm fine, Dean, I'm fine. I don't need exercise. I walk the neighborhood, I do gardening. I said, that's fantastic, but that's meditation. That's not exercise. You gotta get tired. You have to get short of breath. Of course, with your doctor overseeing things, making sure you don't have a heart problem. But the second thing is, even if you work out half an hour a day, but then you sit eight hours in a row, it negates the benefit. So walk throughout the day. Create an environment in your house where you have to walk, you have to move, you have to stand, you have to stretch, you have to you know, do squats. Move throughout the day. Or get a little foot pedal exercise. And, and the way we do it is that you can't watch TV unless you're moving that thing. And you know, that's, that's beautiful. That, that's that's uh, better than exercise. So move throughout the day. The third element is leg strength. This is a surprising one. You did the research on this. Uh, the research shows that people who have strong leg muscles actually have bigger brains. Um, the area of the brain hippocampus that is responsible for encoding memory actually grows when the muscles in the, in the body, especially in the legs, actually grow. And it makes sense because our legs have the largest muscles. So when we work them out, they actually create a whole lot of growth hormones for the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So if you have a lot of that you know, circulating in your body, it actually helps the brain much better. So bigger legs equals to bigger brains. I mean, it makes sense. The biggest pump in your body is not your heart. It's your legs. The way the blood gets back to the body is with the legs pumping, so stronger legs there. The second thing is the biggest metabolic surface in the body is the legs. So meaning that how it processes glucose and energy, the legs. So if you have bigger legs, stronger legs, the The number one factor that gets elderly into the emergency room is falls. Guess what's the best thing for avoiding falls? Stronger legs. I mean, the list goes on and on. So start doing your little lunges, your little mini squats, start getting those legs strong. Um, We're expecting massive legs for America. Yeah, so that's the leg thing. We usually say that nutrition, stress management, and sleep create the environment for brain to thrive, but exercise and mental activity actually grow the brain. Study after study after study shows that people who exercise have a bigger brain, the Harvard study. They they looked at neuroimaging or MRIs of people who um, exercise and they found out that people who exercise on a regular basis or, or active actually have better looking brains. And when you look around the world where people live the longest and they have the highest number of centenarians, um, they actually live in areas where there are less roads and they have less cars and it's a hilly area and they walk a lot. So you take places like Ikaria in Greece and... Unless they roll down the hill. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Unless they roll down the hill. <laughs> um, but it's walking. It's just you know being physically active. So the third thing is stress management. We, we say unwind, 
the, the human uh, neuro. Uh, but the reason we say that is because it's about managing stress, unwinding stress, because it's not just about bad stress. We actually talk about good stress. Bad stress is the kind of stress that's not driven by your purpose, doesn't have a clear direction, doesn't have clear timelines. It just starts gnawing at you because you don't know where it's going, what it's doing, and after a while, it actually starts eating at your brain. In fact, we know that people with chronic stress have smaller brains. And sometimes people just, you know, they, they can't really differentiate between stress and what happens in their day-to-day -day life. So people who are chronic worriers, when they worry about everything or every small little thing affects them negatively, that's actually stress. Mm -hmm. And if that continues day after day after day, that exactly is the thing that destroys the brain. It eats away at our brains. Now, good stress, let's focus on that. That's critical. Good stress is actually stress. In fact, the people that had the most protection with their brain, and the greatest protection conferred to their brain, were the people that were challenged throughout life. That challenge is, is stress. I mean, when somebody gets a higher degree, when somebody's running a company, when somebody's organizing something, when somebody's leading a project, when somebody's volunteering, these are not stress-free things. These are not tension-free things. But what's the difference? Those activities are driven by your purpose. They have a clear direction. They have clear timelines of success. That actually builds your brain. How could that be? Well, it's the interpretation in your brain. Your brain says, this is a good stress because I, it's mine, it has direction. That sends a different message to your pituitary, which is your master gland, which controls your thyroid, controls your growth hormone, control, controls your insulin, controls your immune system. So bad stress creates chaos. Your cortisol levels go up, your adrenaline levels go up. All these things are thrown off. And over time, actually not that much time, even shortly, it damages the body significantly. Now, good stress is different. It sends a different message. I like it, it's positive, it's one of stabilization. Cortisol level goes down, adrenaline goes down, and your body is actually allowed to heal. This is moment to moment. Now, look at that. I'm telling you that by addressing your stress, how do you address your stress? Most of us don't even identify our stress. In our house, if there's anything that we'll be sponsored by is a whiteboard company because we have a whiteboard in every room. Our kids get up and they have to write clearly, specifically, clearly means specifically, what is the bad stress? Oh, I don't feel good. That's not specific. Uh, you know, in my classes, this part of the class is giving me trouble. That's specific. Good stress. When I'm doing, you know, when I'm reading, I like passages that are like such and such. And that's good stress. You identify those. What you do is you build around good stresses and you reduce the bad stresses. This is management. This is like business management, but it's management of the most important thing you have, your moods, your stresses. Because if you don't do that, forget about nutrition, that will never happen. You don't do that, you will never find time for exercise. You don't do that, forget about sleep. What's the number one thing that affects sleep? Stress. If you don't do that, you will never optimize the brain. So manage stress by specifically identifying good and bad. That actually determines if your brain grows or shrinks. And you're listening to Dean and Aisha Shurzai, and they're talking about, well, the things that we can do to live better, to live healthier, to live longer. 
their discussion of the brain, their discussion of stress, good stress and bad stress. Well, it doesn't get much better than this. They're in a place called Loma Linda, California, which happens to be a blue zone. Pick up the book Blue Zones by Dan Butner and read all about these parts of the world where people live to be 100. And well, they live well and they live to be 100. And by the way, what are some of the covering the lifestyles of these blue zones? And by the way, these are zones where lots of people engage in these activities. Moderate regular physical activity is number one. Life purpose is listed as two. Stress reduction, which we just heard about. Moderate caloric intake, plant-based diet, moderate alcohol intake, engagement in spiritual or religious exercise. It's not just your body you have to exercise, but your soul. Engagement in family life and engagement in social and civic life. And all of these things together create this ecosystem that allows for just a richer, better, and, well, longer and healthier life. When we come back, more of Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story, the husband and wife doctors who risked their careers to prevent Alzheimer's. Their story continues here on Our American Stories. we continue here on Our American Stories and the conclusion of Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story on better brain health. They've spent years researching how to combat Alzheimer's, going as far as saying it could be prevented even before the rest of the medical community thought so. They created their acronym NEURO, Nutrition, Exercise, Unwind, Rest, and Optimization. Here they are talking about the story behind the power of sleep. The next thing is sleep. Sleep is obvious, it's important. Eight hours of the night you're paralyzed. Why would you be paralyzed? You, that puts your body in significant compromise. Why wouldn't it be created that way? Well, it's because it's that important. Eight hours of sleep, sleep does two things. When we sleep, I think it's probably the most important time of the day for us. I feel like a hypocrite right now because we, we just traveled and I'm so jet lagged, but please forgive me, but <laughs> it's during sleep where our memories are created. All of the information that we get from our conversations and interactions, they land in our brain like as if you're scribbling on a sticky note. But when we sleep, that small you know, sticky note gets converted into a beautifully typed Word document that gets placed in a file and a folder in a cabinet so that when you need it the next day or the next month or the next year, you actually know the location and your brain has an easier time retrieving that. That's basically what happens when we're talking about encoding of memory. And when we go 
to the deepest stages of our sleep, that's exactly what happens. When people don't get good sleep, when they have interrupted sleep, or when they have shorter amount of sleep, that process gets interrupted. And they've done studies where when people um, you know, have, for example, when students had an exam the next day and they were sleep deprived, their scores were lower. They actually had a difficult time organizing their thoughts. And on the contrary, when they got a good seven to eight hours of sleep where their sleep pattern or the architecture was such where they reached those deep stages, they did phenomenally. The second thing that happens when we sleep is the brain cleanses itself. Because the brain is such an amazingly active organ, imagine the amount of byproducts that are created. Like a building, you know, when it's, when it's active and people come and go, there's a lot of garbage produced. And so the same analogy of a building can be applied to what the brain goes through at night. You know, at night the building shuts off, uh, but there are janitors that come in and clean up the building for the next day. So we have these cells called microglia, and these are the janitor cells of our brain. So what they do is they get activated when we sleep and they go around and they gather all of these waste products and the byproducts and the toxins and it gets rid of them from the brain to the body. When we don't sleep, these janitor cells go nuts. They start not only getting rid of the toxins, but they actually eat away at the brain. So people who are sleep deprived or they're, you know, they, they have night shift works and their sleep architecture is completely damaged, they actually have smaller brains on scans. And bad sleep or sleep disorders is very prevalent in the community. A lot of us have sleep apnea, but we never find out about it because it's something that's not usually asked in the clinic. So when people have you know, sleep disorders like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, or they work long hours where they stay up all night and they don't get enough sleep, they actually tend to have higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. There was a study that came out from University of Florida a couple of years ago, and they found that people who had sleep apnea, which is a condition where you stop breathing and your brain doesn't get enough oxygen and you keep on waking over and over again, sometimes more than 50, 60 times, they actually had a 70% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who didn't have it. Um, it's all about finding out what the disorder is and using slow cognitive behavioral therapy and sleep hygiene to help improve sleep patterns. We don't mean that you should stop your sleep medication. We're not against medicine. We just are against medicine being used forever. I mean, there's a whole mentality in medicine now that once you put somebody on medicine, you, they're supposed to go on forever. That, that damages the brain. Long-term sleep medication has never been shown to be beneficial, in fact, the opposite. Because data shows that even a lot of the medicines, even though you're knocked out, but you're not getting the deep level sleep. So you think you've slept, but it, it, it actually has caused damage over time. So start working on sleep. The next thing is the optimizing. And, and optimizing means that good stress. For us, optimizing is not playing Sudoku. I, I'm, I'm a, on a personal crusade against Sudoku. You're gonna years. make a lot of people upset. I know, I know. So, Sudoku is fine, I just hate it. <laughs> but it's, it's about, we did the largest study, uh, the meta-analysis that looked at what kind of behavior, what kind of games actually affect the brain the best. It's not a particular game, it's complexity, meaning activities that involves all of the brain. What, let's see, what is that? Is it a game on the computer where you follow a little dot? No, 
It's real life activities like learning a new musical instrument, learning a new language, learning a new dance, learning, um, uh, you know, how to manage uh, something, learning a new, taking a new class. These are complex. They involve all parts of the brain, not one part. They're also usually driven by your purpose. You like it. So it's a different kind of interaction with your brain. So let's talk about music. Aisha is a phenomenal singer. If she knew how bad I was at music, I think this relationship would never have started. But I've played guitar for 30 years and I'm terrible. Uh, I mean, that's not even a joke, it's a terrible guitar player, but I like it. But look at guitar. So you're playing a guitar, you're reading the notes. That's the left side of the brain that's being activated. You're thinking about it and processing it and that's your frontal lobe. You're visually processing it. It's your back of the brain, it's your occipital lobe. You're being creative, it's your right parietal lobe. You're emotionally involved, that's your limbic system. That's not Sudoku. That's your brain on fire. And that's the case in all these complex activities. If you're building something, if you're working on your car and you love it and you're involving multiple elements, if you're learning a new language, especially if you go to the country of that language and involve, you know, get, get involved, that's all of your brain. That's each of those neurons, of the 87 billion neurons, making 30,000 connections each. That's the level of protection that cannot be even be overcome by, by pathology, like Alzheimer's. That's the, the kind of activities I want people to get involved, especially around the age of retirement. We say, don't retire. A friend of ours, Howard Rankin says, don't retire, rewire. Means if you're going to retire, get something else, get involved in something else that you love and work as hard, challenge yourself, because that actually keeps your brain connected. That's the beauty of, of, of getting your brain involved throughout life because those millions of connections. It's incredibly important for people to hear this because we are being hit with the tsunami real fast. We're actually in the tsunami. Right now in the United States, there are 5.8 million people living with Alzheimer's disease and every 64 seconds, one person is diagnosed. Two thirds of them are women and two-thirds of caregivers are women. So the incredible amount of stress that caregivers go through actually keep, puts them at a higher risk of developing multiple diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. And when you know that there is something that can be done to prevent this horrible disease, and you know our job is, and our joy is in the fact that we can disseminate this, this message of hope that people should be able to take care of their own health and take control of their brain health. By the way, it's the fastest growing epidemic in the West. It's number three in the United States, number one in Japan, number one in England, and it's gonna be number one in the US. Every family will experience it. And at this point, we have zero medication. The medications we have are symptomatic. They're not slowing the disease or stopping the disease. But guess what? We're saying that 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented with a comprehensive approach where you don't have to pay anybody anything. That's, and, and it, it starts at the community level. We, we want the communities to combine, come together and work around creating environments where these things can, can take place. Because guess what? The most expensive disease in America is also Alzheimer's. The second costliest disease is heart disease at 120 billion. The third costliest disease is cancers. All cancers combined at 70 billion. Alzheimer's direct cost alone 290 billion and direct cost 240 billion. So that's like five times more than the second the, the leading disease and it's growing to the extent that by in the next 20 years it will be more than 1.2 trillion dollars it will destroy our economy by itself and we're saying we can stop it 
or at least for 90% we can stop. And that starts with these kind of conversations. This starts with the families joining together and changing, making some changes. And then we hope, uh, and, and if, you know, we're here. If people need guidance, if they want to talk to us, uh, Loma Linda is a leader in this. Loma Linda Health is a leader in all of this prevention. In fact, it was the first place that, that invested in prevention and healthcare and, and everything's coming around back to Loma Linda. And on the brain side, the shares eyes here, uh, we're here to help. And you've been listening to the story of Dean and Aisha Sherzai, and what remarkable, beautiful people. And my goodness, I'm glad we were able to bring just a piece of their wisdom and knowledge and their life stories, because this all started again with grandparents who were ravaged by Alzheimer's. And by the way, you heard the statistics. The fastest-growing epidemic in the West, 90% of it can be prevented. And my goodness... It is with no medication that we can do this. And so many of you listening, you're at that age where you're now starting to think about taking care of your parents. And let's face it, you're taking care of your kids and your parents. And my goodness, it's time to get everybody's house in order and do what we can to stop this scourge. The brain, we learned so much about it. 2% of our body, 3 pounds, 87 billion neurons, 20% of our energy, 40% of our oxygen. And Aisha said it isn't just an organ, it's us. We can work on it and make it better and stronger, and it'll change our lives. And as always, our health stories are brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. And thanks to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring the series. Dean and Aisha Sherzai's story, here on Our American Stories. 